0: Hello lifers, this is Heather Drew and this is the Life in the Whirlwind podcast. I have some cool, exciting news for you. It's not that exciting, don't get your hopes up. But you know this little app called Instagram, maybe you've heard of it? (laughs) Uh, I have joined this Instagram uh, and have a Life in the Whirlwind profile now. So uh, if you'd like to come follow me and see some pictures related to this overall project of contemplatively moving through the world, uh, trying to be more aware in the midst of busyness and crazy life and uh, sort of overachiever as status symbol, (laughs) um, come follow me on Instagram, life in the whirlwind, no spaces, all lowercase come check it out. See if you like it, like what you see. And I would love it if you followed me. It'd be great to meet up over there. Okay. So back to business. Done with the pleasure. Let's get on with the business, right? It's tedious business of podcasting. Just kidding. So today is episode 39. And this episode is called When Observing Butterflies. I really like creating titles. In case you haven't noticed, this is sort of my gift in life. Anyway, so the other day I was reading a book by a man named Thomas More. He is a more recent Thomas More. There's like an old, old Thomas More that's long uh, passed on, and then there's a Thomas More who's still alive. He's a British guy, alive and well, as far as I know, and. Uh, I'm reading this book called Soulmates, which is about the mystery of friendship and relationships and love, Uh, just sort of all these different kinds of love. So I was reading this book and he has this thing that he says in the book and it made me think. So I wanted to share it with you. He says, it is always a mistake to talk authoritatively about mysteries, so what's authority? That's the first thing that I thought, right? Like I, this is what I do. I hear something, I read something, and then I break it down a little bit. I sort of think of like, oh, why do I like that? What do I like about that? Um, what do I not like about that? That kind of thing. So, you know, when you look up authority in the dictionary, I didn't really look it up in the dictionary, but if you do that, you kind of get this idea that someone who has authority has the right to act and speak in a specific way, with sort of like a command presence over something. Either because you created it, or because you're the author of it. That's, you know, authoritative, authoritative. Um, or you're a teacher of it, or you're designated as an expert or something. So you can act and speak in a specific way. But here's here's a problem that I find in our culture, is I see a lot of people who talk and act authoritatively about the mysteries of the universe, and it doesn't necessarily serve us. So it got me thinking. Particularly, I can really only speak of American culture because it's what I'm most experienced in. But I have noticed, I have observed that a lot of times people from America, people from the West, come into specific scenarios, maybe even new scenarios they've never been in before, and they speak as experts or teachers instead of approaching things as students or learners or open people. I think one of the reasons that we do this, well, I'll come back around to that in a moment, Actually, but let me say this first. As Thomas Moore says, I think this is a mistake to treat mystery as if we have authority over it. Why do I think that's a mistake? Well, so first of all, if you're thinking on a more self like, how, what does this have to do with me kind of thing, that level, um, it can be very exhausting and depleting to be someone who has all of the answers. It is exhausting and depleting to try to be relevant and knowledgeable sometimes. And maybe this is really resonating with you, and I'm just going to spend a second on this, but I don't know if you're one of those people where you're just like, man, I really wish I could go a whole day without having the answers and not even caring what the answers are to certain questions. Maybe that's you. Maybe that resonates. Maybe you need a vacation from being the expert. But the other side of this is, you know, the problematic side, I think. And this is where I want to, this is what I want to address today a little bit more. When we treat things that have transformational power as things that are mostly only or only good for informational power, we defile the sacred. So let me say that again. When we treat things that have transformational power as things that are only good for informational power, we end up defiling the sacred. So I think maybe the first important matter of business here for us is to consider why we take the transformational and we turn it into informational. Why we speak authoritatively about mysteries uh, or something like that, or try to have the answers. So last week's episode, Belonging, episode 38, we talked about belonging. And one of the things we discussed was how we often seek to appear relevant so that we fit in and belong. If you missed that episode, go back and Check it out because it's all of these, in case you haven't noticed, I'm starting to get like momentum building a little bit and I'm trying to build them off of one another consecutively. So these episodes are really building off of each other or so I am attempting. Um, but anyway, sometimes we get stuck in this shame cycle where we build walls around us because, you know, we're just... We're like stuck in shame because we're trying so hard to be relevant. And often those walls, at least in the West, at least in America, are made up of knowledge and answers and appearing capable. These walls get us stuck in a shame cycle. And we have to keep on proving ourselves because we're never enough, right? It's this message of scarcity that we're always trying to live to disprove. So while these things are not, these things like knowledge and answers and capability are not inherently bad or wrong, they just often lead us to making this kind of mistake that Thomas More talks about this speaking of mystery as authoritative, authoritatively. I observe at least, that it's difficult and maybe even impossible. I'm not sure. Can't prove it, but just some quantitative evidence. Some quantitative data has been collected. Um, But I think it's difficult, maybe impossible, to hold both an expert posture and a learner's posture simultaneously. It's like one cancels out the other. To some degree. And so, again, while it's not, these things aren't inherently bad to like want to know things and want to learn things and have answers and be capable, those are good things. We have to think about why. Are we wanting these things to stay relevant so that others view us as capable and knowledgeable and expert-ish? And then they look up to us, right? So it gives us value in other people's eyes. And then we don't have to worry anymore. But what's counterintuitive about all of this is that we end up building walls made out of knowledge and answers and capability. Because if anyone saw that we don't always know the answers, our whole persona would just crumble. Our whole reputation would be smashed to bits, right? Rightfully so, you're probably wondering what on earth this has to do with butterflies. (laughs) Great question. Fair question. Um, They're probably, this is not an original idea. This is one of these random things that keeps popping up in all these weird different locations of my life. So I just, I was like, okay, I have to talk about this. So a lot of people have been mentioning butterflies. Butterflies. Not just butterflies, but observing butterflies. There are probably more than two ways to observe butterflies, but for the sake of this episode, we're just going to talk about two ways of observing butterflies. The first one is living observation. And the second one is observing something that we have killed. Okay, so living observation is you are observing the butterflies in their natural habitat. You are going to them. And observing something we've killed is like, have you ever seen, we have a really cool science museum in Philadelphia. Uh, We have a couple actually. One is the Franklin Institute and then one is the Museum of Natural Sciences And uh, it's really, really great. And I'm probably saying that wrong. I can't remember what it's called exactly. Uh, Sorry, science, and sorry, Philadelphia. (laughs) But there's this guy who collects insects, and this is what he does. And he, you know, he'll sit there and talk to you about all these insects. All of the insects that he uh, has in these boxes are clearly dead insects. They've already been dead. He didn't kill them. Um, and then he has live insects. So this sort of this different way of observation, observation that I've noticed with this guy at the Museum of Natural Sciences. And it's kind of cool. In this analogy, I want to explain what the different aspects represent of this analogy. So when I talk about butterflies and how I'm relating this to appearing as experts and coming in as experts versus learners. Butterflies represent in this analogy, what I call sacred ground. So what is sacred ground? We all kind of have this idea, but, um, it's this spiritual reality, right? So what is sacred ground? Here are some examples, spiritual process, um, the development of your spirit. Uh, suffering and grief or your own sort of processing of painful things or beautiful things or growth or loss or whatever. So it's your, one of the examples of sacred ground is your interior. Uh, St. Teresa of Avila, you know, she has this very well-known book called interior castle and that's definitely a good, a good representation of sacred ground. It's just this interior space of yourself and, you know, where your true self lives, capital T, capital S. Um, but it's not just us. It's also somebody else's interior castle, uh, someone else's spiritual process. So, you know, self-awareness and other awareness both are sacred ground. A really good example of this, in my opinion, is in helping professions. Um, You know, in my office, in my counseling office, I consider that sacred ground because here I am let into someone's space and their interior space, and my interior space is engaging with their interior space. It's very beautiful, it's very, um, it is very sacred. To say the least. So these are examples of sacred ground. Now, what does living observation mean in connection to sacred ground? So if you think about the reason, by the way, butterflies, think about that. Like butterflies representing sacred ground, very important. It's a good, it's a pretty good analogy. Uh, If I do say so myself. Anyway, B is this living observation. What does that represent? So you are on somebody else's turf during living observation. You are in their space usually. So I, this is how I imagine it, like going to the rainforest to observe butterflies. It necessitates extreme care. You're not going to just, you know, when you go into a, a butterfly's habitat, you're not just going to take a helicopter in, right? You're going to take the slow, quiet, quote unquote, inefficient, <laughs> aware, undamaging approach. Because you, the thing that you're about to observe completely depends on your slowness, your awareness your uh, non-damaging, your personal motives very much connect back to how this observation is going to go. And you come in as a visitor, someone who is on somebody else's turf comes in as a visitor, right? You are on sacred ground when you are in living observation mode. Alternatively, number three or C, I can't remember which <laughs> I'm on, whether I was doing numbers or letters, observing something that we've killed, the thing is on our turf and they have no say. So, in this analogy of butterflies, the butterfly is managed, it's dead. It can't do anything unexpected because it's dead. It is completely at your mercy, right? So here's the thing about these different scenarios. We learn different things in each scenario. With living observation, you get to observe the mystery of the movement and the animating energy of butterflies. Or whatever. <laughs> in this, Whatever this is that we're talking about. You get on that living thing's frequency, not the other way around. You don't ask it to get on your frequency, you get on its frequency. And there's this great sense of wonder and beauty and naturalness about seeing something in living observation to, you know, if you're a therapist and you're listening to this, you know what I'm talking about, to see someone exploring delicately and vulnerably their interior is oh it's a gift it's full of wonder and beauty and it is sacred ground and you have to get on their frequency right otherwise you know asking them to be on yours is not always safe and often not safe usually not at all actually so you may not get to touch the butterflies you may not Uh, You know, in this living observation mode, you may not get to touch them or hold them or possess them, right? I mean, you don't get to manipulate it. It's truly without manipulation, and you see them as they truly are. Now, on the other hand, um, with this observing something we've killed side, you see form, but there's no spirit behind it, no life behind it. So you can see this form of the butterfly, the body of the butterfly. And there's still beauty, but it's curated, and it will only fade over time. So I have this box. I'm kind of upset. I, I really like butterflies. I think they're really beautiful. I've always liked them a lot. Um, and I have this box, this sort of shadow box that somebody gave me a very long time ago, like when I was a teenager. And there's a bunch of butterflies pinned in there. And at this point, the butter... I haven't even dropped the box or anything, but there's just like, the pieces are just falling apart. The butterflies have fallen apart. They've disintegrated. I've found that often seeing a non-living butterfly only raises, not decreases, our interest in seeing live ones. It's almost like when we observe something that we've killed, even we even more badly want to see the thing that is still alive of that thing. <laughs> this analogy might be getting a little murky. So let me say this, here are the risks of different uh, that are different with each mode of observation. So we're talking about butterflies, but really we're talking about more than butterflies. Remember that. With living observation, you live in a space that are full of tensions, right? So, with butterflies, <laughs> you live in this tension of non attachment. Like, you want to be near them and they will always fly away eventually because you don't control them. You don't own them. And there's a little bit of risk to that. And there's a little bit of, you know, sadness to that, probably. But you also get to see them alive. So it's this tension, right? You're living on the edge of tension. Uh, observing something we've killed, you're, the risk of it is that you're, you know, the thing you're observing is dead. It's controlled. It's manipulated. It's under our, our authority. And it is submitted to us. And rarely do we give things like that permission to transform us. Not like mystery does. Not like living things do. There's so much more mystery and transformational power in something that we are observing that is alive, that is dynamic, that is shifting even in the midst of tension. I, I offer you this as true possibility. So... Another really lovely analogy, and then I'm going to wrap up here. Um, Another really lovely analogy for this is uh, midwifery. (laughs) This is actually one one of my spiritual teachers likens the study of God and of the study of self and wherever the two meet as midwifery. So midwifery is this, you know, midwives always say they catch the baby. They don't, you know, some people hear doctors say, like, I delivered the baby. No, the mother delivers the baby. The baby even (laughs) delivers the baby way more than the doctor does. Um, A midwife sort of tends to use language like catching the baby. A midwife's job is holding the space so that what is waiting to be born can be born in safety. So if anything is sacred ground, birth is definitely sacred ground, right? So midwifery is another really interesting analogy for all of this. So when we observe something, there's a lot of there's a lot of metaphor going on here, but the point is this. When we go in like a teacher or an expert or a person with all the answers, we go in to observe something that we've already killed. We've decided, like, I have mastered this. Even think about our the way we name our degrees, a master of arts in counseling. Um, you know, we've mastered these things. And while we like that idea because it gives us a lot of power and a lot of control, this is where we confuse, we trade in transformation for information sometimes. So is it a little bit riskier to not be the master of something and the teacher and the expert and capable? Of course, there's a great risk of not being those things because, oh my gosh, what if someone sees you as incapable or unknowledgeable? Or not having the answers. They can point and laugh at you. That's terrible. Who would want to set themselves up for that? Except here's the thing. It builds walls. And you're studying something that's dead. And you're observing something that's dead. Even yourself. You will die a little. If you're always trying to master everything. Instead of letting it teach you. And observing the living, moving creature that is you. And that does not have all the answers that is in process and certainly this applies to how we engage with other people approaching somebody else with a closed mentality is always going to produce walls and wedges. Uh, So as my, uh, as someone that I care about a lot and I respect a lot says often, explore with curiosity instead of diving in uh to with sort of stompy feet um you know like tiptoeing through the tulips is a thing i don't know who says that who said that first but it's this idea of approaching with curiosity and care and delicacy instead of just stomping around like we know what's going on so here is my invitation my solid concrete invitation to you this week Maybe you consider something or someone that you have typically approached with you as the teacher or the expert. And this might be a thing, it might be an event, it might be a subject, it might be a conversation, it might be a person. But you've kind of always considered yourself the expert in this situation. And I want you to take a moment, once you know what that is, To consider ways in which this being the expert has potentially been like studying something that you've killed. What are you missing? You're getting the form, but what are you missing by not getting the life and the spirit behind it? And then I want you to consider, if you will, how can I approach this thing, this person, maybe even this conflict and position myself ever so intentionally as an open learner, a person who does not have all the answers, a person who sits at the feet of someone else and let them be my teacher and just see what waits for you there. I have this very vivid image of my midwife sitting at the end of my bed, as, I'm, as I was giving birth to my daughter, she, it was like she was sitting there waiting with this look of wonder in her eye and just anticipation, but no mastery, no desire for control or mastery of the situation. It's just kind of like this sweet anticipation. So maybe that's something you can try and see what waits for you there. Get on that person's frequency instead of expecting them to come to yours. And just see what life waits for you there, my friends. My blessing to you this week is this. Give yourself permission to not be an expert, to not have to fear not being perfectly capable, as if there were such a thing. And in this not knowing everything... I hope that you find yourself on sacred ground and at the end of a beautiful pregnancy, giving birth to mystery and transformation and life that you could have never expected. Or perhaps they're giving birth to you. Thanks for showing up. I hope you find life this week. Take care, my friends. See you next week.
1: There's a room inside my heart No one never goes. And boarded up and locked for years And everything was gone There you come along and cut yourself a key Swept the floors and opened all the windows Said, baby, let it breathe When I wake in the morning, will you kiss my face, with a smile no one has ever seen? When I wake in the morning, will you kiss my eyes and say, it's you I've loved all these years. It is you I've loved all these years. get it right, we'll get it right, we'll get it right Baby, come with me When you wake in the morning, I will kiss your face With a smile no one has ever seen When you wake in the morning, I will kiss your eyes And say it's you I've loved all these years It is you I've loved all these years Yes, it is you I've loved all these years It is you I've loved all